0: Matt uh, (coughs) Joseph, Professor at the University of Nottingham School of Geography, who is known to quite a lot of people uh, for his long standing interest in uh, environmental change in in Jordan, Jordan, Um, and he's here tonight to lecture to us uh, on on the fruits of his research. So without any further ado,
1: hi. So, good evening, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, yeah, there we go. So we're looking at impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability of people and the environment and the interaction between those two things over around the last 20,000 years or so. Um, as Bill mentioned, I've been working in Jordan for a while now, in fact just over 10 years almost to the to the month since I first went um, out there. and. I must acknowledge that that visit was organized by um, the RGS and uh, the Badi Research and Development Centre, who organized a visit for British geographers to go and, and visit Jordan and to see if there was a, anything, anything to do, um, and to try and foster some relationships with Jordanian academics and institutions. And so we went um, back in ni- yeah, 2005, and, and I've been heading back Uh, thankfully, uh, fairly regularly ever since. Uh, and These two institutions very much got me going in Jordan and provided support financially and otherwise uh, for the start of a lot of this work. I'm going to do all my thank yous up front um, because um, none of what I'm talking about is is my work, it's very much our work. Um, So I've been working and been lucky to be involved with some some long and ongoing projects um, out in the east of Jordan over the last decade. Initially, with the uh, what became the Epipaleolithic Foragers of Azwak project, um, working closely with Tobias Richter, who I think gave this lecture last year, um, Lisa Mayer now in Berkeley, Daniel McDonald now in Tulsa, and uh, Louise on some of the uh, environmental sides of things. Um, we were all in the UK at some point, way back when, but we've now spread apart. Um, and the second project is uh, that I've been working on now for the last couple of years is the Eastern Bardi Archaeological Project, um, run by Gary Rolson, um from Whitman College, and York Rowan so, and Alex Voss. so it's mostly an American team, and um, these guys have, have got fundraising down to a fine art, so it might be worth picking up a few tips, I think, <laughs> given what we've just been talking about. Um, but this this has been an exciting new area uh, for, of work for, for me out in the, in the the south of the eastern desert and some amazing landscape to work in. And I uh, also just wanted to, to thank maybe not the academic colleagues who I've been working with but some of the, the student field assistants who I've had over the last few years, um, some of which are very much not students anymore, so Sam's uh, now gone and got a PhD and done postdocs and all sorts of things, um, but these guys have really been, um, got out there in not always the easiest of environments to work in, and Horeen's even turned up tonight. So. Nice to see him. I guess also slightly related to what was, we were talking about earlier, but th- this work is not the only projects I've been working on um, in, the, in the wider nearest region. And A lot of the ideas that maybe I'm going to be talking about in a minute have, have come not just from the work in Jordan, but for work uh, in, in neighbouring parts of the world. So I've been working um, on projects in Iran and Turkey for, for quite some time too. And the ideas that we've been looking at with these people really tie in to what we've been doing um, in jordan and very much work supported by you know sister institutions to the cbrl so um, start with some, some background i um, i put two words on this on the slide there so you can contextualize or you can you can conceptualize it's it's up to you i don't mind which one you do um, but trying to think about how we understand uh, the interaction between the environment and the climate and the people that that live within it. And that's uh, a lot of work and a lot of words have been written about how best to do that. Um, Not least, you know, in the 21st century. And there's a a few words said in Paris about it in the last week or two. So, um, and the words that I sort of stole for my title came from um, this uh, working group two of the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who are looking at impacts, adaptation and vulnerability particularly of climate, onto people. Uh, but I think this is you know, a two-way street, very much so. And they summarise or conceptualise, or whatever they do, um, sort of that, that topic and that issue um, in this diagram, where they uh, look at you know, the amount of risk a given group of people uh, are under. Uh, and it's a function of um, that, that group's exposure to different amounts of hazard, uh, be that... Um, you know, socio-economic hazard or, or risk, or forcings, or natural or anthropogenic climate change. So, how do you mix all that together? And you know, how risky is it for an individual or a group of people to live in a particular place at a particular time? I think you can argue that this diagram is pretty much relevant throughout time. Um, maybe if you get rid of the anthropogenic climate change bit um, of the of the wording, but everything else is very much somewhere that you could. You could put a given group of people um, at any point in the al- archaeological record uh, and stick them somewhere in that figure. And there's other ways that people have been looking also to sort of understand this relationship between environment and people. Uh, lots of discussion about resilience, a theory that sort of came from, from ecology um, and which I'm not sure anyone actually really understands, even the people that came up with it, but lots of people are talking about it, uh, and there it is, and I'm not going to mention it anymore because I certainly don't know where it's coming from. Um, and then things like ecosystem services, which is a, an idea that comes from uh, some geographers in Nottingham, actually, uh, and in other places, looking at how we value uh, the resource we have available to us you know, in terms of water resource or, you know, or the agriculture that can be grown from that and things like that. And both, again, ideas that I think we can think about in terms of longer-term interactions of people uh, with the environments they live in. Can't really go anywhere, certainly in, in my field these days, without the word anthropocene being being thrown around. It's a word uh, that's being discussed in many fields now. Um, this idea that there is a, a, a new period of geological time which we're living in, which we can, we can mark in the geological record by humans' activity on the environment or or market um, in the geological record. Um, And it's another interesting way, I think, to start thinking about how people have interacted with the environment that they live in and how the balance between um, people being impacted by climate and environment and vice versa may have changed in time. Um, Lots of discussion about the Anthropocene, when did it start, what were the major causes, and the two main theories are Um, One, it was quite a recent event, sort of post-industrial revolution, post-anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, that kind of thing. And the second uh, sort of hypothesis, which has been really led by Bill Ruderman, and this is the book that sort of kick-started his hypothesis, is that this has been something that's actually been going on for thousands of years, that you can see a record of human impact on global climate, global environments for for thousands of years. And he wrote this year, where he decided to remove the capital A from Anthropocene and change it to a small one, which he argued was a subtle but important difference, uh, that really it doesn't make any sense to define the start of any human-dominated era in the geological record, you know, thousands of years after most forests have been cut down by people, and there's plenty of evidence for that. And I guess I'm very much yeah, I don't disagree with that concept. And uh, so a lot's been written about it, and this is, you know, some of the work that we've been doing in Jordan ended up in this um, edition of the Holocene Journal, even though the work was based on stuff going on 20,000 years ago, it seemed to slip into the Holocene for this purposes. Um, but we discussed things like, you know, and this was from the introductory, one of the introductory papers in that uh, volume. Uh, so the Anthropocene is not a pretty word. Yeah, there is indeed a need for something like it. So like lots of other words, I guess it has a lot of baggage with it at the moment and needs, needs sorting out. And uh, But it, it is a great word in terms of interdisciplinary research and a great way to tie in, um, I guess, where I originally came from in terms of looking at environmental and climatic change um, with where I now spend a lot of my time talking to archaeologists about how that, Interact, how that impacted on societies at different times and in different places. And it is a great way to tie that, those different kinds of research together. Actually, something I argue that most of the projects I've been working on have been doing for a while now. So, um, having said all that, um, the one thing we've been trying desperately hard not to do in any of our own work is to conceptualise that relationship too much at all. Uh, because you immediately become in danger of of taking a top-down approach to your hypotheses and to the results that you're finding. So what we really look to do is to take a bottom-up approach. Look at the environment that the people you know, living in place A are actually experiencing, not the environment that's been reconstructed 100 kilometers away or you know, another continent away. What is the environment that those people are experiencing and how, how did they experience it? Um, for how long did it change or was it stable? you know, a stable climate potentially as interesting as a changing one in terms of understanding how people interact with it. There we go. So that's some of the, sort of the general background to environmental people interaction thinking and where we're at. Um, just a bit of a focus on, on the region in which we work, and I guess this is... Um, maybe I don't need to give this bit of the talk to this audience, but just to put, to put everything in some kind of context. Um, it clearly is you know, a region uh, at, at risk in, in many ways and um, you know, the environmental story is, is part of the pressures that are put on this particular part of the world um, in which it has to deal with. Um, so this is just a map, uh, the United Nations map uh, from a few years back of water stress. So this is you know, areas of the world which are in, in physical or economic water scarcity, so, um, uh, so we're sort of focusing on on this part. This is not a part of the world that has has a lot of water to play with. Um, be that because that water isn't there in the first place, or because it's just being used uh, by too many people. Um, Into yeah, and the future's not particularly bright in terms of that map getting any better uh, for for the Levant or the Near East region. So this is the North African Middle East. Uh, plots of the IPCC climate projections um, for uh, the next, up to uh, 2100, so the next century. And this is what they're predicting in terms of temperature change. There's some uh, variability on here, so it depends on on how extreme you think your greenhouse gas emissions are going to be over the next uh, 100 years. So I guess after Paris, we're hoping we'll be more at this end of the diagram rather and at this end of the diagram, and it depends slightly which climate model you use to, to make your projection uh, but in nearly all cases uh, the forecasts are for you know, a much warmer uh, world and very much uh, warmer uh, Near East and Levant and that means more evaporation and even if it does rain anymore it's going to be driven off and it's, it's not doing any it's not helping that water balance that water availability in any way and that's not helped by the fact that most models um, are predicting a reduced precipitation at the same time for the same region. So we have a region that's water stressed now, that doesn't have the water it needs for the population it has, um, and in the next you know, 80 years is going to have more evaporation and less precipitation. So the problem isn't going to get any better. But it's not just about climate. I think. One of the the things that's very much uh, come out of the work we've been doing in Jordan in particular is that climate change is important and water availability is important, but the stability of the landscape and its ability to hold vegetation that people can eat or can um, support uh, a substantial amount of animals that they can eat um, is almost as important. So you need some kind of stable landscape as well as um, a water resource for people to... To eat, and obviously, this is you know, an issue today. Desertification is a, is a big issue, and it's a big issue, particularly you know, in those of us who have been to the Konya Plain, for example, you, know, you see the destruction of the soil um, out there in, in Turkey due to over farming and uh, the use of groundwater and salty groundwater to water those parts. So, you know, the quality and quantity of water that people have being able to use uh, is having an impact on the quality of the land they have to live on, never mind the amount of water they have uh, to live with. Uh, So, something else to think about. And I think this is becoming a big, uh, an important part of the story uh, back certainly in the early Holocene um, in Eastern Jordan, as we'll see. Um, Just to ram home the point, um, this is a fairly old study now, but you can see, just looking, it's not just the amount of water, the physical amount of water is going to reduce into the future, more and more people are going to want access to that water. So, it really is uh, more and more stress. Um, in terms of the environmental side of things, never mind anything else. Um, and of course, none of these numbers took into account mass movement of people due to, to other factors, uh, migrations of people from Syria, for example, in the last few years. So more and more impact again in terms of resources. Um, and and the resources that are available um, aren't aren't being replenished, and they're not going to come back. Uh, so um, we'll see some photos from Azraq um, shortly. Uh, from from what was, you know, a substantial aquifer in terms of supplying the people of Jordan with water. Um, they're now getting a lot of their water from this, uh, the Al dizi aquifer, which is shared with uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, and not that it really matters, but for those of you with really good eyesight, you can see down at the bottom, the quote here. You know, this water is 30,000 to 10,000 years old and it hasn't been replenished since, and it's not been being replenished now, yeah, and it's unlikely to be replenished in the future. So it's a finite resource. You can keep pumping it, but that water's not going to go back in. Uh, so it has. that in itself is interesting paleoclimatically, when those things were recharged, um, but maybe that's not the pressing concern of most people um, in a man at the moment. So, the, the, you know, Understanding how people interact with their environment is is an issue today Um, and in this part of the world it it seems to have been an issue for a while. There's a lot of discussion and there's certainly uh, a lot being written about people adapting to and changing uh, to significant climatic and environmental changes, Uh, not least discussions um, related to uh, societal shifts and maybe the beginnings of agriculture through the last Glacial transition into the Holocene, uh, where there seems to be at least a correlation uh, between you know, changes in, in societies and, and groups of people and what climates were doing, at least on a global level. And this is always, of course, the problem with the kind of work uh, that we're trying to do: is that it's usually about correlation, uh, and finding a, a definitive causation to link those things, two things together is always a problem. And in fact, is ultimately impossible, so you know, it's reducing to, to, to at least some point a level where we think we can be as confident as we can be that the environment led the societal shift or the other way around. Um, and the other issue, I guess, going back to our point of trying to keep things local, is that even five years ago people were publishing in science, of all places, diagrams like this, comparing societal shifts in the Levant to the climate of Greenland. Which isn't anywhere near the Mediterranean. So, is that, you know, truly what's going on in terms of Levantine climate change? We don't actually know, Um, and there's a lot of, you know, it's it's an interesting hypothesis, but it remains only a hypothesis, and it needs testing, still. And uh, so, I've been talking about that. I thought that was sort of a, a a dying issue, uh, and that 2010. uh, I thought, I can stop using that as an example soon, but here we go, 2015, uh, societal change in the Levant uh, compared to even subtle changes in in climate in the North Atlantic, and we don't understand fully how things in Greenland are being uh, felt climatically, certainly not um, in the interior of the Levant in the east, to make any causal link between you know, correlations and to, and to, of societal shifts and climatic change. So there's a lot of work to do, um, even though you read some things and there's a definitive story. Um, the truth, apparently, is, is not out there, despite what some people think. Um, so, some some case studies. What we've been trying to do um, to build on some of those ideas and, and to add some evidence to the mix, maybe. So So, working now at, at five sites out in the east, of Jordan, and uh, the red circles here represent the the EFAP, the Epipaleolithic Forages in the Azraq project sites, and the blue circles, the Eastern, uh, Gary and York's project. Um, So, And just a brief summary of what we've been doing. I think we've sort of got to the end of stage one of this work now, which was really to um, identify what was there in terms of an evidence base for environmental change, and at a broad level, what was it actually telling us? Um, and at this point, we can now move on. Hopefully, um, given a fair wind and a decent reviewer for a change, um, we'll get some actual detail out of this as well. So, um, the Epipaleolithic Forages of Azraq project has been going on eight or, eight or nine years now, I think, and set out to reevaluate epipaleolithic landscapes. Uh, certainly something I've learned since since starting work on this project is there's more than one landscape, um, which I wasn't aware of before. Maybe more scapes would be more appropriate to say, and I'll stick with the land bit for what I do. Um, but um, we've been focusing on the, the Azraq Basin, which is um, in blue here. Um, and you can see just in the, in the present day, there's quite a severe... Uh, rainfall gradient um, from the Mediterranean coast into the Azraq Basin here. So, by the time we're in to the Azraq Basin, um, there's very little precipitation, um, but traditionally it was uh, the source of, of quite a lot of water from the aquifer. Some of which was, you know, 10,000 to 30,000 years old, and a lot of it which fell um, up here in southern Syria. So. Different sites of different times, and, and trying to build up a picture of how things have changed. Um, and I'll go through these chronologically. Um, so this is the site of of here in the central um, part of the Azraq Basin, um, uh, and an interesting site to work on. And um, this is what the wetland reserve looks like today, and what it should always look like, really. Um, but Unfortunately, this is artificially pumped water to the surface now. Um, They try and keep it wet to help the the migratory birds that use this part of the world and things like that coming, uh, coming through and coming through uh, Jordan. Um, But this is what. Yeah. But I found this this photo on the Azraq Wetland Reserve Facebook page the other day. They posted this of what it actually looked like back in in the mid 1980s and. It's quite sad, this photo for me, because you know, even though I've been working in Jordan for 10 years, I've never seen Azraq how it should, have, should be. Um, and this is you know, quite a sad sight, these kinds of photos. I think, you know, It's not that long. It's only 20 years before I started working there. So the speed and rate of change, I know some people in this room probably did see it at its best, but you know the speed and rate of change and the environmental <laughs> degradation in terms of water availability... And the quality of the land left for agriculture is, is remarkable and rapid, and, you know, and has a big impact on, on the people living there. And this is what it looks like now. You know, it's a dry hole in the ground, so you know, that, that water is gone and it's been taken by people. Um, so this is, and this is the the site of Ancaisia. Then that we were investigating, or Tobias was excavating, um, this particular layer here that he was interested in, uh, some Epipaleolithic stone tools and and bones and things like this Um, and I think even for the untrained geologist in the audience you can see that the environment has changed at this location it's a a nice example of some stratigraphy at least and you know this is what we've been trying to get at what what does those changes in the sediments that you can see actually tell us about uh, the environment and how that's changed and how did this occupation um, here tie into that story of environmental change so we, we've been going through it and trying to get it. First off, just understanding the timescale over which these changes have happened and how that might tie into a broader um, regional picture of environmental changes. Um, and um, we know that this is you know, these changes in the stratigraphy are linked to changes in the amount of water in the system um, in central Azraq. And um, we now know... Um, due to this fantastic experiment they've been doing by pumping water out of the aquifer over the last 30 years, that the spring activity is very much linked to um, water availability and um, how much water is in the aquifer. Um, So um, it's not a story particularly of um, just climate change at Azraq at that location. It's about the amount of precipitation falling over the whole basin and reaching the centre of the, uh, the basin and coming out in the springs. So it's not a simple climate environment story, it's a groundwater um, environment story that we have to try and get our head around. Um, And this is a summary of of the data and all all the dates from the site, so um, that relatively small two metres of sediment represents the best part of 60,000 years in terms of environmental history. Um, Obviously some big gaps in that record, Um, but it it shows us that that things were changing and that um, probably the the most uh, open water conditions at the site, so the period of most net water in the Oasis actually preceded preceded, um, that epipaleolithic occupation that Tobias was um, studying. We've now started to get into some of the nitty-gritty of of maybe what information is in this this sedimentary archive, never mind what's in the sediments themselves. Um, And so this is some work uh, by Monica Ramsey looking at the uh, phytoliths at that particular site, and also the charcoal, so you know, what's preserved in terms of the burning history um, at this site, and some interesting initial results that we're still trying to, to make some sense of. Uh, but definitely um, the charcoal here is represented by this red line. So this is a, you know, a, a story of burning, whether that burning is due to, to people or whether it's, it's natural burning of the environment, you know, we can't say. Uh, but this is a story of burning compared to these, you know, the blue lines and the other curves here, which show us uh, the, the kinds of vegetation that are actually living um, in this marsh environment where the Epipaleolithic archaeology was found. And nothing particularly surprising in terms of the vegetation that was found. It's, it's marshy, and so lots of reeds and things like that, which is what we'd expect. But an interesting inverse relationship between the amount of burning and the amount of vegetation that seems to be turning up. And the archaeology is in this upper section, so in the, the non-burning intensive phase of the marsh. Um, so what that actually means in terms of a relationship between people, fire and vegetation, um, we haven't got to yet, but there's, there's a story in there to dig around with. Second site is uh, Khurana 4, uh, so a bit later, but another uh site in the Azrak Basin. And uh, the site itself um, is here. Uh, so it's quite a large aggregation site uh, that uh, so it seems to have protected itself um, in the desert in terms of the, a lot of the uh, rest of the environment probably blown away, uh, deflated through the Holocene. But the site's so dense in terms of, of lithics and bones that it's, it's preserved itself in the landscape. Um, and this is just an example of, of the stratigraphy in the site. Um, and what I've been trying to understand is how these deposits around the site um, actually interact with the site itself in terms of uh, the timing of this wetland. So um, these are maybe this is a better view. So this is an aerial uh, a view of the site taken from Google Earth not that long ago. So the site itself is here, and these pale sediments here, uh, marked B, are. Um, wetland miles so they're full of ostracods, a few diatoms around as well. These are very much a water lane deposit. Um, interesting here that they've now dug a, uh, a big reservoir dam um, into the into the desert to try and catch the water that run down, runs down the Karana Wadi here. Uh, they just missed the site, thankfully, after a few panicked emails between a few people at some stage. Um, but interesting that this is a, you know, water stays in this through to the summer today. So if you, if you build a big enough hole in the right place, water can hang around in this environment still. I think this is an interesting um, experiment in itself that water can hang around um, all year if people don't take it all away um, and if the, if the evaporation, precipitation balance is right in a given year um, and the space that water has to sit in. Um, is is right in terms of its morphology um, anyway. so uh, the site itself um, is very well uh, constrained in terms of its dates it 's relatively short lived just over a thousand years of occupation uh, despite its uh, relative density um, and uh, seems to have been along with its um, sort of sister site of Gelat six um, seems to have been two major aggregation sites in the Epipaleolithic. and this was a paper that, that, that diagram that Lisa drew in a paper we've just had, I can't believe this got through actually but wiggly lines on a map brilliant, so you know, it could be in anything it? it's fantastic. Anyway, but I think what it suggests is that Corona 4 and Gelat 6 were the centres of everything at this particular point in time and people were coming from all directions. You know, we can see from you know, the shell finds, the beads uh, the lithic technologies that people were coming from all over the place uh, to this location for that relatively short Period of time, about thousand years or so, um, sort of eighteen to nineteen thousand years ago, Um, and interestingly, they weren't going to the centre um, of the the oasis. At least, there's no evidence of of a site of that size and magnitude in the middle of the oasis where the springs were. They were they were outside of that. So, um, interesting points why that might be, although. I think there's some evidence that the, the lithic technology is different at Four and Gelat 6, and um, both types of that, both lithic types are found at Anchisea, so maybe you know, these were you know, slightly separate groups of people living in the landscape but all going to, to the central oasis to, to hunt or to, to get water, I'm not sure. Lithic technology is not my strong point, so I'll leave that to, to others in the room. So, in terms of the environment and where we are, um, This is The site sits here, so this is another stratigraphic plot. I won't bore you with these, but these are my bread and butter, so I'll get excited at least. um, Here's the site um, itself in terms of its stratigraphy. So this is the vertical uh, relationship between the site and these wetland mulls. And what we found is when we surveyed all this stuff in is that the the site does overlap stratigraphically with the mulls. So these things did coexist. The wetland was still there when the site started. Uh, We don't know... Um, if it was still there uh, when the site finished, um, in fact it, it, it seems unlikely there 's evidence of drying elsewhere in the landscape, um, but a lot of the the sediments on top of the miles to this point have been blown away, so we 're not exactly sure whether they 're miles or less wind blown sediment, um, but at least we know at the beginning of the site uh, then that this wetland uh, was at least there for some for some time and was probably you know a reason why people would go. Uh, and maybe settle at this place, because there was water available. So moving forwards in time to Shebaker. So this is a, a slightly later site, 13 to 15,000 years. Climatically, you know, globally this is interesting, because this is in the so-called Northern Hemisphere, Younger Dryas. So this was a, a return to glacial conditions um, after the initial warming uh, global warming around 18,000 years ago. Um, and interesting in terms of, you know, uh, as I mentioned or alluded to at the beginning, societal shifts and and the correlations with those broader global climatic changes. Um, it's also interesting uh, geomorphologically and environmentally um, because um, the site, or that particular site, that, that is, is one of numerous sites of, of many ages that surround... Uh, the car of Shebaker, uh, which is this basin here, um, and it's 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 been an interesting site uh, just from looking at it. At least even from Google Earth, it's an interesting site because it's a different colour to nearly every other car out in the Eastern Desert. This is how you spot car on Google Earth out in the Eastern Desert: that this light sandy colour on the whole. Um is different; it's um, it's a lot more organic. In fact, it's organic enough that we can get radiocarbon dates out of the sediment itself. There's enough organic material in the car. And it's partly because it's been used for agriculture uh, more recently, so they've been growing crops on it. But it seems to have been um, like that for for thousands of years. So it's a a different kind of basin in terms of the eastern uh, eastern desert environment, I think. Work here is still very much at a preliminary stage, but we have, as I said, started dating the sediments and the sediments date to well after the site, um, at least the, that particularly late Epipal site on the edge of the car. So that, that's, these are Holocene sediments, so you know, maybe ranging between 3,000 and 10,000 years ago, um, which is interesting in terms of what the basin looked like you know, back at the Younger Drys, back 13,000, 15,000 years ago. Was it just an empty, empty space? which could hold more water uh, or anything else, or, or was it, you know, did it have sediment in in then and then that was all eroded away during some, you know, massive catastrophic flooding event? Through? I've not seen any evidence of that, so who knows. But it was, you know, a, probably a very different environment um, 13,000, 15,000 years ago to what it is today, not least in terms of the amount of space to hold water in the environment. Um, so it. And it also made us start to think then it's also now a big hole in the ground filled with sediment. So where did that sediment come from? And where was it before it got washed into the car? Um, going back to our sort of desertification story of the present day, maybe. And this is a story that has been picked up uh, at an early Holocene site, so this the site of Wisad Pools. Um, so. Again, thinking about where did that material come from, where is that material that filled the cars actually come from, um, and over what kind of time periods. So this is uh, the site at So it dates to around seven and a half to 8,500 years, and you see quite a substantial occupation. You know, this is People put time and effort into building these structures, um, and it suggests they, they were coming back there regularly or they were staying there for, for long periods of time. Um, And and it's interesting in terms of societal development. So, this is a Neolithic site rather than an Epipaleolithic site. So, into periods of time where people were were farming and and making more use of their resources potentially. Um, And this is the sort of zoning and what we're trying to do. So, I say we've only had one season here, so it's it's very much early days, but it's picking up on that hypothesis that maybe Shibaker was hinting at. Um, So, this is. um, I actually got into an archaeological excavation last time. So, but there's a, there's a layer of soil beneath these structures um, at Wisad, quite a substantial layer that the, these, uh, these structures have protected from, from being deflated and being blown away. Um, you can see what the, the landscape is like today. It's, you know, it's this black, rocky desert. But was it, was it really always like that, or w- was there ever a time when there was a more substantial soil covering um, on the landscape. There's evidence of, uh, of more vegetation at the site. You know, there's charcoal from, from the sites themselves, um, which suggests you know, use of trees of various kinds. Um, and we're working, uh, Haroon's currently doing some pollen analysis to, to try and pick up the vegetation story uh, preserved in, in the sediments in, in the site itself. Um, so again, looking at when did that material potentially leave then what is today at the basalt pavement and end up in the car? And is there a story of, of landscape stability change as well as climatic change to think about in terms of the environments in which these people were having to, to survive? And at times these guys were thriving, so you know it must have been a pretty nice place to hang out. Uh, so what does that mean in terms of what the environment was like? So I'll just sum up a little bit first in space. Uh, and then in time. So here, here are the sites and, and their timings. Um, and you know, it's always be nice to think that there's a there's a story in in space and time, and, and something that's nice and straightforward and, and would make sense. Um, and these are just some. There's a dotted line on this map for a reason that you we know, you don't we don't really know whether people and how people were shifting around this landscape through that time through this time period, of the last 20,000 years. Um, but there does seem to be hints of a movement of people north uh, during that younger Dryas time period you know and we would suggest you know, that areas up north would have generally more rainfall than, than further south and east so that might be uh, a forcing factor and we have you know substantial occupations in the early Holocene um, now at, at Shebaker as well but also out um, in the east here that are suggesting you know a much stabler, vegetated, better watered environment uh, certainly than we have today um, and, and this uh, interesting in terms of, a, you know, we know the Sahara was green at this time and well watered and well occupied, how far east did those conditions spread or how far north did a, 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 a greener Arabia spread and, wh- and where's, the, where's the rain coming from? Or, these are questions we're now starting to try and tie together um, looking at a, a broader region. In time what we're, what we're lacking um, and probably will always lack is a, is a nice continuous record of paleoclimate, paleoenvironmental paleo environmental change from the east of the Levant. Um, so at some degree however local we want to keep our work we're going to have to stick up something like the Sorek curve, Isotope curve or the Dead Sea uh, late level curve to, to compare to because there 's nowhere out east that has that continue, continuous uh, record of environmental change uh, which is a shame but it's it 's also an interesting challenge it 's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together with only three of the pieces instead of three pieces missing at times which is you know, is it makes it an interesting puzzle but I think what we 're seeing is it's a it 's a very complicated landscape and it 's uh, it's been a patchwork landscape at, at all those different time uh, slices. You know, different places within the Azwrack Basin itself have been worth settling in, have been well watered at different times. It's not, it's not the whole basin's been wet at point A and it's all been dry at point B. You know, it's been subtly wet and dry at different times, uh, and people have moved within it to, to get at that resource. And I think that's a, a lesson to think about in terms of bigger scale models of, of change. If you know, if the Azraq Basin itself is that subtly complicated, what does that mean for the whole event or the whole of the Near East? Now, these were big gradients of, of climate and environmental change that people had to deal with. Uh, and I still don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be in, in testing those kinds of hypotheses fully. So, yeah. So, the, the sum up, briefly, if that wasn't it, is that um, <laughs> Yes, there have been, you know, this, this is a, remains an interesting area to work on. It's important to understand how people are, are dealing with environmental change and, and environments of different kinds in different places. Um, and this relationship between people, climate, and particularly now environment has to come into that. It's not simple, a simple human climate story is, is way too uh, simple Conceptualization for us to be dealing with, given the evidence we've got now. So I think I'll leave it there. Time for a brew. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Matt also said uh, he's happy to take questions. Do you have any questions. I've got an unfair question. Thank you, Matt. Very interesting. Um, if you roll it on, so you're saying it's drier. It's wetter in, let's say, the Neolithic than it is now.
2: If you carry on from the Neolithic onwards. What happens then? You may not want to ask that question because you're not here to talk about the
1: later environment. I know, but that's what I'm interested in. The <coughs> from, from. In the Neolithic onwards. Yeah. From, just, does it get drier? And hotter? From the east of, from the east of Jordan, I can't tell you what it does there, because there's no, there's no evidence. We can look at what's going on elsewhere. I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's, you know, there's no, I think this is what I was saying about the, this lack of decent, continuous environmental record. We can we can look to Turkey, and we can look, you know, maybe even to the Dead Sea and other places, and generally we know what the eastern Mediterranean was doing, yeah, it, it got drier and we, we know that, but specifically what it was doing here. And that of course there is evidence that people were surviving at various points, there's, well, you know, go to Birka and that 's your Roman castle and sat there and still water in the in the basin so there are, there's places where there's you know you can survive and or even survive pretty well, but those places seem to change and how stable those are but I did try and take a course through Burka a few years ago and didn't get anywhere, but you know maybe something to go back and try and you know wh- you know how long has it been there and, you know, how how persistent was it a water source in the landscape I think these are uh, you know, in relation to that as
2: well. It's very difficult. To, um Say I mean, one of the frustrations is that some. I feel in some ways we probably know more about was 20,000, years ago.
1: No, the, there is there is contradiction. I I struggle with the contradiction sometimes. It's, it's the the data is the data is right, so the contradiction is always the fact that two people sure. or more people interpret it differently, which is and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, but I also think it's a there's a big regional story that and that some of these basins are, are huge and the climate gradients are. Steep uh, and I think important, and they need looking at. So, even the Dead Sea is you think you know it doesn't mean the rainfall was necessarily falling on the Dead Sea, and um, but the Spiriathems that were from Sorek or from Peking or wherever else they, they need the rainfall at that, at that point. So, that I think there's subtle changes in storm tracks north and south, and all these kinds of things, and how far they push east at various times. Um, Which you need a you need a bigger picture view of, Um, but you also need to you know try and get to grips with what your proxies are telling you. I think that's that's another thing to keep coming back to is you know what does are are all isotope curves the same and are all late levels you know is it precipitation is it evaporation? I think people are still talking about that and maybe will for. forever I think, but, uh, just because people have a camp. which <laughs> But it's no, there's, it all still needs looking at, and it still needs working out and I think it, it's still only, it still really is hypotheses floating around, not real stories and I think that's forgotten sometimes in the literature. I'm not big clear about the
2: hydrology of this, um, was, it, um, was it really clear as
1: For the, the main Azraq basin, or the yes,
2: uh, this, this area you been describing.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the, the main Azraq basin itself, um, the the basis of the aquifer is, as with the, the one further south, is rainfall that fell ten to thirty thousand years ago, and then has been pushed through by rain largely falling in southern Syria, so in the Jebel Druze, and, and pushing it through since then, and, but it has been getting saltier as they've abstracted it. And they've been they've been using the fresher water and you know, coming ending up with the salty stuff at the bottom unfortunately uh, so there are you know there are local aquifers which they've stopped using and they've just become salty. Um, because th- there's no real recharge to speak of There's enough to keep pushing the water through but recharge is tiny if, if not negligible so um, yeah. but it that it, it's interesting from the the paleo environmental side as well. I think that because it's it's that understanding that lag of time lag between water falling and it reaching a particular place, particularly in Aswak where it's such a big basin. Uh, and Chris Ames, I think, has ta- started to talk about that with the work they've been doing in North Aswak, about you know looking at the lag of you know actually was it was it such that when when times were dry and wet and drier terms I hate using so. Um, because everything 's more subtle than that, um, but you know when if if, if precipitation was reduced in Al was for a thousand you know, thousand year timescales, but because of the lag in the system, does that mean actually the springs were quite happy? Whereas when rainfall was relatively high in the center of the basin were springs reduced, but it didn 't really matter because there was still water coming so I think you know, there 's a, there's a groundwater landscape, climate people mess that we still have to try and tease apart a bit more carefully.
0: Can I ask an ignorant question? One of the things that always strikes me is just when you go to Sherbury, the the nature reserve is how lush it looks. And they insist that they don't do anything to irrigate or anything. And and it's very clear that there's lines of fences and and a, a lush environment with a soil profile and outside where the goats go. It, it looks like the sort of desert picture. Is, is that an evidence of the sort of lag you're talking about? Where, or and how much, I mean, if you take the goats out of the landscape, what would the rest of the landscape look like? Would it
1: all still be savannah? Fantastic to try, would not it? I, yeah, th- I guess that's the one thing I left <laughs> out of my mess, is the, is the animals, isn't it? So, the, you know, the, the grazing has obviously had an impact, a massive impact. Uh, but I don't know. I don't. Know. There's probably other people in the room more qualified to talk about the animals. <laughs> but it's you know looking at when um, when those change. I don't know when the, the grazing really had started as had a significant impact, and when it changed what it looked like. I mean, I don't know whether that was centuries or millennia in terms of a timescale, or decades. I don't know. Do you- the grazing of
2: the land extremely.
1: We just what pass this one around. Show? I mean, it's quite incredible, isn't it, to see either side of the fence. It, I mean, it's it's remarkable how much how much vegetation just grows in, in what you'd think in an environment where you wouldn't think it would. And, but well, you know, and that, but it's all then it's a it's a chicken and egg thing too, isn't it? Because you you need the soil to get the vegetation, and the vegetation stabilizes your, your landscape, and that helps chop your water, and then one of those something kicks in with it, phrasing, another hypothesis to add to the list, what, what the evidence would be to, to test whether that was the, which was the, the force and which was the, the impact. I don't, know. I don't know whether we've got anything we could date well enough to ever answer that question, at, at least out there. So, so what, we, what we've used here is the, the sedimentary evidence for how the environments have changed, or the, the fossils that we find within that sediment, okay. or maybe evidence that you can get from the you ar- you archaeological sites. Away? So you know, a lot of the more recent material, if it ever existed, has, has been blown away, okay. um, because partly because of the lack of vegetation and the other reasons, it just, it just deflates. Um, so we don't have anywhere, there's no... There's no wetland, maybe, you know, apart from Burkis, that's existed for long enough to, to keep that sediment safe, as, as it does in, you know, further to the west or up in Turkey, where we still have lakes that preserve that, that sedimentary archive. Um. So I think, I think there's more work to be done maybe looking at the, the archaeological sites themselves and the, the environmental information that, that they preserve uh, and looking at them in a, with a slightly different eye, maybe evidence that's even already been collected to have another look at that, and, or to, to use you know, different techniques on those finds to try and get an environmental story out of them. Um, but then it's just, again, it's 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 one piece of a jigsaw puzzle in space and time, mm-hmm. um, rather than a, a nice regional picture that, of continuous change. that good. No, no, <laughs> no I But what's
2: that, that you, find you
1: can see? But the problem we're having is that, but so, where do we go? At uh, Pancasia, uh, where we've we gone through, even though we've got contiguous sampling and we could go finer in terms of that, the, the errors on the, the mm-hmm. dating, because it's done by OSL largely rather than radiocarbon, um, is, makes it makes it difficult, so you've always got plus or minus 100 years on every date. Uh, and with OSL taking lots and lots of dates, isn't it? I think it's going to help in the same way. Um, and uh, at Hurano it's the same, the, the off-site sediment is not really datable with beta carbon, so we can't get that kind of uh, resolution. So it is another... The, re- yeah, the resolution we can best hope for is another problem. shebaker seems to be giving some... Radiocarbon ages, which is interesting, Uh, and they all make sense so far, which is also interesting. And I'm always a bit sceptical if things work um, in terms of dating. So, um, so maybe, maybe some more high-resolution stuff coming out. That's certainly the plan. But how high resolution? High resolution is another interesting phrase. Now we've got scanners that do every 200 microns, Um, but if we can't date. Really no. Centennial probably mm-hmm. at yeah, best. If we're lucky. Centennial kind of resolution. if we're lucky. Okay. I think we might wrap it up then. we we have a an informal reception. I was
0: like informal on the note. I'm not quite sure uh, how relaxed you have to be, but um <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like to thank Matt again for the lecture. It, it's uh I that were moved by the academy the society, but I think it's a very appropriate venue. For that. The last time we were here was some of the other climate research we, 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 we've done in Levant, and at that time a lot of that work was looking at some of the uh, large-scale meteorological modelling, and I think part of the call that was coming out of that was for more bottom-up research to, to, to help calibrate that. So thank you very much